Meditations with Ryan Slomack. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Meditations. I'm your host, Ryan Slomack, and today I'm going to start out things a little bit different. I am an educator and I'm very proud to be an educator. I've worked in the academic space for about 15 years and have had countless students who I've just been honored to be a part of their journey. But one of the fun things you get to do as a teacher is you get to sort of see where your students evolve into. And a number of them have developed really cool projects that have benefited this show and others, uh, including our guest today, have gone on to do things that are sort of loosely related to the, the media arts classes that I've taught. With that said, I wanted to start out with some shout outs. Uh, This whole podcast project could not be made possible without the help of some other people. Uh, Gabs Danu is the designer of the Meditations with Ryan's Lomac logo. Simon and Nick are two students who created a company called TXF Media, and they are currently doing all the audio editing and balancing for this podcast. And then we have our guest today, who is CJ Butler, who's another former student of mine who has gone on to do really amazing things in the social media marketing space and is currently the marketing communications manager at the Salt City Market, which if you've listened to this show, you've heard me reference it before. It's an amazing resource in Syracuse that is is a business incubator for people who want to start uh, their own restaurants. It's a giant food court. It provides uh, housing in downtown. It's developed the first grocery store in downtown Syracuse in a very, very long time. And it's a project devoted to helping create generational wealth in a city that has struggled for a very long time. You'll hear all about that and more in today's episode. So without further ado, here is CJ Butler. CJ, thanks so much for making uh, space to have this conversation and uh, in the community room at the Salt City Market, no less. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pretty excited. And uh, for those of you who are uh, out of towners, you've probably heard me talk about the Salt City Market. We'll get more into what it is uh, just in general. But I, every time I'm here, I feel like I discover a new space. Like I, uh, I discovered the communication system with the apartments today, uh, the butterfly, right? And then, um, you know, just in this space right here, kind of like, envisioning what this community room can be. And as we're, you know, opening cupboards, we're finding yoga supplies and things like that. Uh, But in regards to today's conversation, I really wanted to just, uh, I don't know, kind of talk about your professional journey. Um, And on this show, there's, uh, we have a lot of people and uh, that talk about a lot of things and very few of them are under the age of 30. So I'm glad I can be that representation. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for hitting a, you know, a a demographic need for us. Um, But the first thing I wanted to kind of talk about was, uh, you know, when you, you know, you're, uh, I don't know, we were just making jokes about the fact that like you're ready for a retirement home, but, uh, you know, when you were thinking about your, your careers when you were in high school, like what, what did you want to be when you grew up? What were the things that, and and it's okay if you flash back to like, oh, when I was seven, I want to do this. But like in general, like what were you excited about? What did you want to sort of spend your your life doing? I knew I wanted to be an it girl. I knew I wanted to be uh, in charge of something. I wanted to be kind of a mover, a shaker, someone who could be creative and, you know, have big ideas and be able to maybe not execute those ideas, but have someone else execute those ideas. Um, so obviously when my first thing is I wanted to be president, obviously, <laughs> I feel like that kind of wraps up all those desires up into one. Um, and then I wanted to be a lawyer and 
realized pretty quickly on maybe around like age 10 that it's actually not as fun as it seems when you're watching Legally Blonde. There's a little more that goes into it. Um, so by the time I got to high school, uh, I, I was still stuck on the needing something creative, needing something where I could be expressive. And I'm a, I'm a talker. I'm a loud talker. I'm a big uh, communicator. And it's something that's really important to me in my day to day. So looking forward to the future and going to college, um, I knew that I wanted to be involved in something uh, that had to do with communications. I knew I wanted to be, uh, I, I don't know if you remember, in high school I was voted most likely to be a celebrity. So <laughs> I definitely wanted something that was somehow involved with the media um, or kind of the online space. And this in 2014, 2015, this is when social media really was like pushing forward in terms of um, being on the mainstream for a fair number of people. Uh, so I actually chose my college major, which was media culture and communications, just based off of the name. I was like, those are all things <laughs> that I love um, and it's what I want to be doing. And I was where I wanted to be, which was at NYU. That was a school I had wanted to go to since I was eight years old. Um, so it was really important for me to be able to find something where I could be creative. I could be, you know, have a voice, be able to share my opinions on things. Um, and then and also have that kind of, you know, city vibe. So I found myself at NYU in New York City studying media, culture and communication. Awesome. And uh, I like the fact that, uh, you know, all these years later, uh, the meditations with Ryan's on my podcast could help you reach that next level of celebrity status. You know, <laughs> took, it took a little while. I apologize. I finally worked my way up to it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, that's really interesting. What I, I always, I actually just had a meeting with uh, a student who is kind of struggling to figure out the college experience. What made you decide when you were eight that NYU was the place you wanted to go? I think for me, it was a combination of things. I think the biggest thing was that I wanted to be in New York City, which I think is an experience a lot of young people have, um, especially if you're coming from a smaller town like Syracuse, perhaps. Um, you kind of envision yourself having this big city life and New York City, if you're on the East Coast, is the place to be for that. Um, so I, I definitely was looking for that. I think for me, I also have always been... Um, you know, a little bookwormy, a little nerdy, little, you know, I, I wanted to be somewhere that combined both, um, you know, the kind of academics that I was looking for, as well as that kind of city lifestyle, um, which interestingly enough, didn't get to experience as much as the city lifestyle due to the academics. But um, I think for me, um, it was really important for me to be in that space. And also, you know, thinking about communications and creativity, um, just kind of the energy that comes from New York City was really important for me. Now, would I recommend that to my younger self now. Um, who, I also had a full scholarship. So that also changes the way that you think about what you're going to do and kind of where you're going to be. Um, so yeah, maybe wouldn't give that same advice to someone who wasn't in that exact same position. Um, but I definitely um, just thinking about all of those things were really important for me in choosing to go to NYU. I love it. And I, I think that like, as I was, I was going through and doing research on this, like there's certain people who like go to college and there's just a, a stop gap and it's like, all right, cool. Like I was involved in like theater and all these clubs and all these things when I was in high school. And then I went to college and then after college, I, <laughs> you, you know, there's just this kind of like, yeah, I guess we're just going to chill for a second. Um, and as I was like looking at the stuff that you did while you were in college, like uh, you pretty much started your social media management career while you were at NYU. Yes. 
Um, I had a classmate um, who was very, very entrepreneurial, and she actually started, she was also in the media culture and communications major, um, but she started a hair care brand. And you know, she's she's hawking her hair care at college. And I recognized very early on once I decided I wanted to get into social media, I was fully aware that it's an underpaid field um, and that it's both underpaid and competitive to get into because everybody has a phone. Everybody is able to do some level of social media management. Um, so I started pitching myself to small businesses for free, which is a great price <laughs> to be able to get people to give you some experience. Um, so I started working with her, uh, with uh, her business. This was called the Hair Whip Company. Um, and from there, I was doing uh, like convention kind of sales at her tables, also helping with some of the social, doing photo shoots and things like that. Um, and it really was just a great experience to work with someone else's business and to, you know, be engaged with, you know, it's not my thing. I don't have as much um kind of, I don't have as much stake in it, but to be working with someone who does just get, helps you to see like, okay, this is like, I got to get this post out because you know, the, the sales are on the line. Um, so it was a really awesome experience. And from there, I just kind of bopped around from small business to small business, um, which is really awesome garnering that experience. And what made you decide that like going into social media was, was the space at least at that time that you wanted to explore? So I originally, um, social media wasn't even where my mind was going when I thought about my career professionally. I really wanted to get into like beauty magazines and do like be like a Teen Vogue beauty editor or something like that. I knew that whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to be able to share my experiences, be able to kind of persuade people to try new things, do new things. Um, and as I kind of saw social media becoming this you know, a viable career. I always tell people, you know, 20 years ago, my job didn't exist. It wasn't a thing that you could be paid full time to do. Um, but as I started to see like, okay, this is, you know, actually something that could happen. I spent all of my time on Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram and all the other places. Anyway, I might as well get paid for it. I might as well turn it into something, um, that, you know, can pay the bills. So. <laughs> Do you have a secret past career as a Vine star that we don't know about? <laughs> I wish. That's actually one of my biggest regrets that I didn't get in on Vine early enough. I should have. I think about that all the time with certain social media platforms where I'm like, oh, if only you'd started content creating. It was so easy back then to just like make a few videos and then you can be a star. Now it's it's a little more inflated. <laughs> it is. And I think that like, I don't know, the one thing that's fascinating about social media marketing just in general is the fact that like, for the most part, you're looking at two things. You're looking at either social media platforms that have been in existence for a very long time in some people's uh, purview, perhaps even longer than they've been, they've been alive. And then uh, you're looking at what is the next platform that's going to have longevity. So like to have, to have a platform like Vine where like it was so short lived and like it is actually a definitive case study. I always get so, like such a kick out of that. And just also like thinking to yourself, like, joining the ranks of being a social media manager is kind of like, it's not even drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> it's like going whitewater rafting and realizing you have to inflate your raft while you're in the water, at least at the beginning. Right? Yes. Um, no, it's definitely an interesting position to be in because I think for a lot of people, like social media is frivolous for them. So there's, there's not really, um, 
as much, they don't have as much stake in it. It's just kind of what you do while you're, you know, waiting for your kids to get out in the pickup line or whatever you scroll through. But for me, it really is like Armageddon. Like I'm, I'm seeing the trends. I'm trying to follow certain things, but then you also have the brand guidelines and kind of staying within the, the boundaries that, you know, whatever client or, or employer you have. So it's definitely, I see it as much more of a gauntlet than I think most people do. And I think there's also something to be said about the fact that like so many people, I mean, to your point, like they're if we're going to keep the water analogy like you know there's the doom scrolling which is the drinking out of the fire hose because you know it just never sort of ends and then there's the reverse of it where uh when you're working in the field or you're working on your own personal brand and, and things like that you all of a sudden start to be a lot more critical of what content you're seeing and how manufactured that content is as it comes out to you and there's you know there's a, there's pros and cons to both uh the just sort of like absence or like not absence makes the heart grow fonder. Where was I going with that analogy? Uh, but you know, just the idea that like ignorance is bliss and you can just sort of, okay, I'm observing this thing. And then the reverse of, uh, I'm looking at this manufactured communication and then I'm thinking about a, how does this impact me? B, how did they put it together and C, how can I use it for what I want to do later on? I, uh, I spoke to some ITC, I think juniors and seniors last school year, um, one of their, they had a digital journalism class and I was asked to come in and speak to them, um, to talk about social media and social media marketing. And I think the, the teacher, when they asked me to come in, definitely thought I was going to talk more about like, here's how to use emojis and, you know, here's how to make your posts get a lot of likes. And I was much more concerned with teaching them how to like identify, you know, fabrication in social media and organic posting versus inorganic in ways that like, I think especially for young people, they often are so, um, kind of like the digital native idea where they have been using social media from the moment that they were able to like hold an iPad in their hands um, so that there are many things that they don't necessarily are, they're not necessarily able to see. It's like, oh, this is manufactured. This is actually someone's job to create this super funny TikTok that you saw that actually has this like multi-million dollar corporation pushing behind it. Um, so definitely probably scared the teacher a little bit, but the students were very into it. Um, and one of them asked me, like, okay, so like working in social media, um, what do you, how do you deal with ads? How do you, in your own personal scrolling, I'm like, I block every single ad provider that comes up on my Twitter account. <laughs> like, I'm going to make it difficult for these social media machines to, you know, use me for their data picking. Um, and I think it just makes you a more, you know, conscientious consumer of a lot of that, um, a lot of that content. So yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword of, okay, how do I use these things for my own, <laughs> my own nefarious needs when I'm doing it for a corporation or doing it for an employer versus as a consumer, how do I kind of block that out? Yeah. And sometimes it's hard. I mean, sometimes it's hard to just sit there and like, all of a sudden you recognize like, oh my God, when my phone is telling me I've been on it for eight hours today, like two hours of that was me being really productive. Like what <laughs> happened to the other six, you know? So small things like um, Instagram and TikTok will remove your time from the top of your phone. So that as you're scrolling, you don't see how much time you spend. Um, and being constantly aware of that, that like, that's great if you're marketing on social media, not great if you are a human person trying to maintain brain function. <laughs> yeah, it's like visiting a casino on your phone. Interesting. Well, so back to your back to your time at NYU. Um, you know, it was really interesting, uh, kind of going through. And so you mentioned that you had uh, was it Hair Whip was the 
the hair whip and then uh, GL, GLH nail lacquer. Yes. Uh, so you- another small business that I pitched myself to being like uh, they, the owner had actually come into one of um, my courses as a guest speaker. Uh, and I went up to her afterward and was like, hey, you've got a really cool brand. And again, this is still when I was in my Teen Vogue beauty editor mindset. So as if you'll notice, it's a hair care company, nail polish company. Um, but I was very strategic in choosing kind of who I wanted to kind of work with through that. So again, free is a great price when you're trying to, you know, kind of get your foot in the door with these small businesses. Yeah. And the, and the trick with that is making sure that, I mean, yours, it was, it's just funny looking at your resume and being like, yep, short burst, short burst, like, okay, you either find use for me, uh, and we turn this into something or, you know, please use what I've taught you, uh, be a reference for me. I'm going to move on and you can only work for free for so long. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, I, I think I gave a good two, three months at least to a couple of those. So it definitely, Definitely, um, to your point, it's definitely about uh, getting out what you can get out and, you know, sign arm on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. was a, So with that, was a, was Soho Soleil Locations your first like full time So job? it was not full time. It was a paid internship, which in New York City is like basically <laughs> unheard of. Um, so I... So part of the reason also why I was pitching myself to these small businesses was because I knew going to college, I was on a full scholarship, I was financially independent, I also had to work. So I couldn't afford to do the really cool Vogue internship for free for six months because I had to eat for those six months. So I'd also be... um, I was a nanny for a while. I worked at a um, like a preschool doing after school programs. Um, I was an RA because I got to get that housing. <laughs> like I, I worked at least two jobs the whole time I was in college. Um, so Soho Soleil was the first time I had a paid job that was also in my kind of field. So working with those small businesses for free gave me the work experience to be able to find those paid opportunities. Um, so yeah, it was the first time that I was able to snag a paid internship in New York city, which is hard to do. So I got to pat myself on the back for that. I kind of forgot. (laughs) Well, kudos to you. And I think it's, it's always cool. I think the other cool thing about like I guess whenever I look at any sort of career trajectory and I realize we're not even to the career part of your life yet, we're at the, we're at the educational part of your life, but, uh, which I would argue they need to go hand in hand. Um, but I think it's really interesting that like just, you know, identifying, I have this skill set. I'm, I'm, I'm a good social media manager. I understand lifestyle brands. Um, and then being able to apply that different places. Cause, uh, you know, the Soho so- Soleil locations, uh, from what I understand was a, a place that basically rented out lofts for team building and corporate events and things like that. So if you're, you know, if you're in the city and you need a place for everybody to meet, you've got like a really hip location to do it. And if you're from outside the city and you don't want to rent a, an ugly conference room at a hotel, all of a sudden you can have this like beautiful 12th floor, 12th floor loft overlooking, you know, like all of Soho. I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So that was actually a really awesome opportunity. Um, uh, so Soho Soleil's was run by an artist actually, um, who was actually kind of like the artist in residence for one of the laws. It was her house. Um, so, uh, basically she had, um, I believe it was three spaces in this one building in Soho, um, where they were completely outfitted with chairs, tables, the easels, all the things that you would need. Um, and then, so my job was to try to market these things, get our social media up, get some, you know, articles up on the website. Um, 
and just try to entice these corporations, these um, like larger magazines, especially in New York City, would use them for photo shoots because, again, you have these insane, super high ceilings. You're in Soho. Um, they got beautiful light. Uh, so it was a really cool opportunity to kind of see that side of I'd never been involved in any sort of like administrative position in that way of seeing like, oh, okay, we're kind of the behind the scenes of this larger meeting that's happening. Um, it definitely, I got boring after a while. I'll be, I'll be honest about that. Um, there's only so many ways you can describe a meeting room before it starts to kind of turn you crazy. Um, but it was a really cool opportunity just to kind of, again, build up my skills. I'm, I'm a skill builder to my detriment sometimes where you put a problem in front of me and I'm like, oh, let me try it. Like, let me just see if I I can do it. So then I can tell people in the future that I can do it. That's why I'm forklift certified here, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, learned how to write these articles and, you know, build in SEO keywords and really um, just kind of build out my skills as a communicator while also thankfully getting paid um, in this kind of internship environment. So it was really awesome. That's really neat. And you, uh, I want to, I want to just ask one more question about your NYU experience uh, before we, before we move forward. But uh, you also spent a good amount of time studying American Sign Language. Yes, I did. Um, so I actually got my minor in American Sign Language. Uh, I fell in love with it. Um, so I had a language requirement when I got to NYU. We actually had two. I had had like APs that covered one, but I still had to like go through and uh, finish for the language requirement. And they offered sign language as one of the ways that you could do that. Um, and I had watched um, an episode of America's Next Top Model <laughs> before I signed up for the class where there was a deaf contestant and he was just kind of treated poorly um, because he was deaf and people kind of talking while he's in the room and kind of pretending he's not there. It was really infuriating because again, as a communicator, I think that that's the worst thing that you can do is to like intentionally deny someone information. Um, and so I was like, you know what, actually I'm no better than those people though. Cause I would have no way of communicating with him, um, if I were in that position. So I decided to take sign language. Um, the first class, I kid you not, it was the first time I had ever been silent for an hour and like not sleeping. And I'm pretty sure I sleep talk, so that doesn't even count. Um, and it was so incredible and invigorating um, as someone who is constantly talking, uh, loves moving their hands to be like, okay, you can keep moving your hands, but you got to zip it. You can use your facial expressions, but you got to zip it. Um, and I just fell in love with the language, fell in love with the culture. Um, it's such a funny, honest, like just forthright kind of community um, that I've seen with deaf folks and with deaf professors. Um, and I just kind of love it. It's very cool to be able to, you know, acquire that skill and be welcomed in. Um, so I, I love practicing American Sign Language. I would love to be able to sign more in my daily life. Um, I need to get some more deaf friends, um, but it definitely was a super awesome skill to acquire and just amazing overall. Shout out to the deaf community. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about, um, I guess, being welcomed into deaf culture. I mean, in, in pop culture, there's so many films about, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, are, are maybe their, their parents are deaf and, uh, they're the only one that, you know, is, is, has like hearing capabilities or, you know, people who all of a sudden have a roommate who's deaf or somebody who goes through some sort of trauma and then all of a sudden sort of like welcomes themselves into it. And it's, it's such an interesting community because it's based on empowering yourself based off of what you don't have. And or let me rephrase in regards to what the rest of the world perceives you not to have. And I'm just curious about like what 
what when you say I, you know, it was really great to be welcomed into that culture, like what does that mean? What does that look like? What was that experience like? Yeah. So for a lot of deaf people, their lives are very isolated, especially if they're in a situation where they're the only deaf person in their family, or you know, they're just in an environment that isn't really open to deaf people, doesn't try to sign to communicate. Um and so because of that, kind of in spite of that, deaf culture itself is very welcoming. It's very inclusive. It's very much about sharing as much information as you can, being as honest and kind of, I think, especially in English, we use a lot of, um, you know, you got to read between the lines a lot of the time in conversations in English and deaf culture just does not have that because there's no time for that. We have to, you know, we, we have to sign, we have to get this communication to each other. Um, so what you find is, also, there are many deaf people who have spent their entire lives being um, ignored or being kind of taken out of social situations because everyone else doesn't sign. So therefore, they have to be left out of the conversation. Um, so what you find is when a deaf person finds out that you're hearing and you sign, they're like, OK, like, what's going on? Like, We can communicate. Let's communicate about everything that we can. Um, so. There's uh, a group called the Deaf New Americans in uh, Syracuse, um, and they'll do like deaf dinners and things like that. Um, and I had the opportunity to go to one of their um, events that they had last year. And it was such an incredible experience um, because it was a combination of hearing people, deaf people, translators, like just kind of ran the gambit in terms of um, different folks kind of abilities. And even still, we had an incredible group discussion and we're able to communicate with each other and laugh. And that's the thing I always tell people. There's so much joy in deaf culture um, that I think as hearing people, we assume like, oh, it must be so sad not to be able to hear. Um, and what you find is that, in fact, they're the funniest people <laughs> that you'll ever get to interact with. Um, I Another thing I always warn people, deaf people are very blunt. So if you get described as like, oh, the guy with the big fat belly, it's nothing against you. <laughs> that's just the most identifying you know, characteristic they have for you. So it's a lot of joy and laughter that comes into that culture. And they're always just so willing to share and to bring new people in because they know what it's like to be left out. Yeah. It's really, it's just such an interesting thing to me in the sense that like, I mean, I remember, uh, I don't know, it was probably in like the late nineties, early two thousands, like watching a movie about uh, a, a girl who had deaf parents and like, um, you know, when they were upstairs and she's downstairs, she's flicking the light switch on and off to like get their attention. And then like, now we're at a point where like Coda wins best film of the year. And then you've got like only murders in the building, which is like, you know, has, has a deaf character. And then uh, actually in Syracuse, the movie ultimate playlist of noise uh, was, was filmed here. And that's a whole movie about somebody who is, who's coming to terms with the fact that they're they're eventually going to lose their hearing and I always think like the end of that movie is like the beginning of what him joining that culture would look like um but thanks so much for sharing that because I just think it's really interesting in the sense that like as somebody you know with hearing and I go to concerts and I'm like should I warrant your plug should I appreciate this thing more this this more like just in the sense that like when we take a step back and we realize that there's something as simple as hearing that like we take for granted on a daily basis it's just important to like recognize that um, if we are to lose that facility, you know, like what does part two look like? And, and <laughs> absolutely. And part two of that is also like, if the goal of our time on this planet is to actually help bring joy to other people, like something as simple as like taking time to try to learn some sign language is like a great way to develop that partnership. Uh, so you did something that, uh, I think is a little crazy. Um, I mean, you did a lot of things that I think are a little crazy. Uh, including uh, talking with me, but uh, 
you moved to New York and then voluntarily chose to move back to Syracuse. Yes. <laughs> what, you know, what about, uh, what about this town made you want to come back? And what about the New York experience made you feel like you wanted something different? Yeah. So I, I had always wanted to move to New York. I, if you had asked me when I was 18, 19 years old, like my plan would have been to stay in New York. Um, it's an incredible city. I don't have to wax poetic about the greatness of New York City. There are a million songs we can all listen to that will tell you. Um, but I think for me, um, the biggest thing was growing up and realizing I'm a regular person. And to, so I think New York City um, is... And a lot of native New Yorkers talk about this. It's described as like a rich person's playground. Um, it's a great place to go for a weekend. If you want to go try some fancy restaurants, do some cool art exhibits, you know, go to a concert, that kind of thing. Um, but average people are actively being priced out. Um, and when you live there as an average person, average meaning not a multimillionaire or the child of a multimillionaire, um, it's, it's harder to embrace and enjoy those parts of New York City. Um, so it's something that I started to see as I got into my senior year of college um, that, you know, I'm working. I'm not going to the, you know, the festivals and the things. I'm working trying to, you know, make it so I can pay my phone bill next month. Um, and it just kind of took a lot of the joy out of being in the city. Um, and then I was, I'd come home for a couple of weeks in between a vacation. Um, but I was interviewing, still interviewing for jobs in New York. And I came back to Syracuse and I was around my family and I realized like, Oh, my dollar stretches a lot further here. I have people that I love here. I, I don't have the level of anxiety that I have in New York City. I think anybody who lives in New York City does just have a baseline level of anxiety that most doctors would put you on 10 milligrams of Xanax for, but it, because it's New York City, you kind of just go with it. Um, and it was incredible to me to even have that feeling of like, oh, I actually feel better in Syracuse than I did in New York City. Um, now, granted, I still love going down to the city. I saw friends who live there. I definitely love it much more as a visitor now um, because I am able to engage in you know, those fun things and really be a part of um, kind of the playground aspect of it. But I think living there, I was like, oh, this actually, I'm actually having a better time being a regular person in Syracuse than I am being a regular person in New York city. Um, and I think with Syracuse also, after having gone to a big city and you come back, you have new eyes and you're kind of able to see like, oh, this is actually up and coming in a couple of places. Like, oh, this was a thing that, yeah, New York City did it 15 years ago, but we have it now. <laughs> and those moments that make you see like, OK, maybe it's not all about the glitz and glamour. There are ways that you can, you know, be not only just be happy where you live, but to give back to where you live and to be, um, you know, a more active member of the community that you live in. Um, so kind of considering all of that, it just Syracuse. I hate to sound like every other person, but Syracuse is a great place to live. <laughs> it's a great place um, to live and to have a career. And to if you one day want to have a family like it's it, there are definitely when you compare it to other places, um, there are so many pros. So. Yes, like willingly left New York City for Syracuse, New York, and I'd do it again. <laughs> yeah, so for any of our Manhattanites who are listening or, you know, like my Brooklyn people who are like, what, why are you just talking smack on this? I think it's important just to recognize that, like, you know, I, for a lot of people who I have lived in, you know, lived in the five boroughs, 
they've grown up with those systems. And I think that like for us as Syracuse people, like every time I'm down there, I'm like, this is so exciting. Like I, this, this town is amazing. This would be awesome. And then I have one moment where I'm like, oh, how do I park my car? Um, you know, like, oh, or like I need to, this apartment doesn't have a microwave. Like how would I get one? Um, and like those type of logistical things, I think, uh, just make it a little off-putting. And I want to be clear that we're not at all talking, like Im implying that there's no value in New York, no one should move there, anything like that. We're just, I, I think merely this conversation is putting out that like, it's, there, there are certain gives and takes from when you move to an urban environment with such a substantial cost and such an importance of minimalism that, uh, you know, it doesn't always work for everybody. It's, it's definitely, uh, when I compare my apartment to my New York city friend's apartment and they pay a smooth $700 more and the square footage is double or triple, it's, it definitely starts to, to come into play. So it's no, nothing against New Yorkers, especially native New Yorkers. They are in it to win it. But I think even native New Yorkers can tell that, you know, it's a little hard sometimes. Yes. <laughs> There's a reason why if you can make it in New York City, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. And you made it here. You know? Right. Made it back. <laughs> so in so you move you move back to Syracuse and, and you work a, a few other positions and then you eventually make your way to uh, being involved in the, the Salt City market, which is where we are right now. So for people who are in Australia or the UK or Idaho who've never who have no idea what the heck we're talking about when we say Salt City Market and why are you talking about salt? Like what's going on? Can you just give like a little overview of what the Salt City Market is? Yes. So I guess I'll start by saying what the Salt City is, which is Syracuse's nickname. Um, and the Salt City Market is a food hall, uh, community space, grocery store, coffee shop and bar, kind of all in one space um, that was created by the Allen Family Foundation with the intention of building general weight, building generational wealth, um, doing some intentional uh, community space making and creating spaces for people to come together uh, and also just putting something fun and cool in Syracuse where there was kind of a big flat parking lot and nothing. <laughs> we wanted to kind of impose something that was uh, exciting and fresh and new. So we've got 10 food vendors in our food hall. Uh, They're global food vendors. So we have food all the way from Ethiopia to the American South, uh, as well as we have uh, the first and only right now grocery full service grocery store in downtown Syracuse, uh, which is run by the Syracuse Cooperative Market, which has been um, a resident of Syracuse for, I think, fit over 50 years at this point. They've existed in the Westcott neighborhood. Um, and then we have Salt City Coffee and Bar, which is a true mom and pop coffee shop uh, run by Salt City Coffee, which got its start uh, just a few blocks over on the west side of Syracuse. So it really is an amalgamation of kind of every, all of the talent and excitement that Central New York kind of has to offer, uh, kind of all put into this corner in downtown Syracuse. Yeah, it's really cool. And I think like, um, you know, when I think about it, my brain instantly goes to like business incubator, which is definitely like a part of this. And I, truth be told, like I've been coming to this space since it opened and I've been over the moon and I've brought dozens and dozens of people here whose waistlines are all now a little bit wider than they were before. And it wasn't until I was kind of doing, uh, doing some research on this interview that like, 
I realized how much uh, of an emphasis there was on the generational wealth component. Um, I mean, I'm just going to read this real quick, but on the website, uh, I'm not quite sure if this is a mission statement, but it says, a space for Syracuse to show itself off in all of its culture, glory, richness, and grit. A space for people to build generational wealth doing what they love. A space where everyone feels a sense of belonging, ownership, and civic pride. And I just, I, I, that was the component where I was like, oh, like I love this space so much more because we sit there and we always talk. And I say we, I'm talking about like American culture is always like, oh, generational wealth, wealth, like, you know, oh, it's such a problem when the money's on one place. Hey, do you want to go to Chipotle? <laughs> like there's not really a, there's not many mechanisms uh, that at least I personally see for us to go through and sort of change that other than the inherent American dream that you come, you do a bunch of work, you eventually like make enough money, you buy the house with a white picket fence, you have kids, your kids get to enjoy all the hard work that you had. And we're in a different place in America right now where I think that uh, we need to be a lot more intentional about this. So in my brain, as I was just like, I feel like I've belittled the Salt City market by only thinking of it as a business incubator. No, no, I think, so yes, generational wealth is definitely a huge part of this project. So um, with the Allen Family Foundation, they their, their family's wealth started from a family business. Um, so from the Welch Allen Company, if you've ever been to the doctor, that is the machinery that they've likely used to look at your blood pressure or, you know, check your check your temperature. Um, but their, their family's wealth started from a family business. So they they, they saw the importance in that and saw that, you know, there aren't many opportunities, especially in the restaurant industry, um, the restaurant industry being one of the, it, it, it calls, it calls, I think that's the best way to describe it. I think 90% of new restaurants fail within their first year um, because they often don't have the supports. It's very expensive to get into a restaurant. Um, finding a loan for a restaurant can be extremely difficult. Um, and so the Allen family, saw that there was this kind of hole in Syracuse where, okay, folks need generational wealth. Folks also need a cool place to exist. Folks need good food to eat. There's amazing food um, happening all over Syracuse on the north side, on the south side, on the west side. There's so much culture happening. How do we pull that together into a unified space where everyone can experience this? Um, and so having our vendors um, one, most of them are first-time business owners. Um, only two of our uh, vendors, Farm Girl Juicery and Baghdad, have owned businesses before. Everyone else, this is their first business they've ever owned. Um, and, you know, they're still kicking, which is insane in the restaurant industry to now be almost three years outside of your opening date and still be successful. Um, some of our vendors have purchased homes for the first times and they're, you know, in their forties and fifties for the first time being able to put down roots for their family, um, having their children work in their stalls and being able to kind of see that hard work and instill in them what, you know, a family business is and start that. So it is really beautiful and it's, it's really exciting and it's intentional. You know, it's not just we're not, we don't just want there to be cool places to eat for the customers. We want the places to also be successful for the people working there. Yeah, it's so cool. And I, uh, so Dave Foreman was on episode three of this podcast and his whole, like our, our whole talk was about like the idea of, as, of food as culture and like food as entertainment and food as a hobby. And like it ended up turning into a really interesting conversation about the fact that like so many people are focused on the idea that like in order to find good food, I got to figure out who has the best Yelp review or I need to go and I need to figure out what who has the biggest dollar sign so I can eventually <laughs> go there. And I think that like, 
here, I am just so excited that like when I come and I, I go and I get uh, sweet potatoes or I get, you know, like a falafel sandwich or I get a, a peanut noodle bowl, uh, whatever, whatever it is that like I'm having a conversation with the people who are deeply connected to this food and then based off of that are able to go through and very rationally succeed in a business that is designed to make you fail. I mean, if you just sit there and you think about the idea that like, you know, if CJ is going to create, I don't know, a cupcake company tomorrow, you need to sit there and you need to have enough money for, you know, X amount of time rent. You need all this equipment and whatever. And in this facility, there are so many resources that sort of support businesses. And I'm curious if you could just describe a little bit about, um, the makeup of the space outside of just the food stalls. Cause there's also like a kitchen that's shared and all these other components. And then also what sort of systems are in place to help, um, businesses succeed once they're here. For sure. So I think um, thinking about the way that this building is set up for folks to succeed, one, we have apartment tenants on the top two floors as well as offices on the second floor. Um, so one that kind of builds in uh, customer, a customer base, especially for our grocery store, coffee shop um, that are open kind of in the earlier and later parts of the day. Um, we also do have a uh, teaching kitchen, which we open up and create, you know, stalls can only be so big when you're in this food hall and you have 10 different restaurants um, and all of their stalls are kind of perfected to what they need. But if you want to add something new to your menu and you don't have the oven for it or you don't have the countertop space to be able to prep it, um, we have our Pearl's Teaching Kitchen, which our vendors can rent out to do prep, um, you know, whether it's cooking off Jamaican beef patties or, you know, putting together your spice blend for the next week. Um, folks can rent that and are able to use that to supplement their business. Um, we also have our community room that we're in right now that while we do use for more community-based events, we also offer up to our vendors if they'd like to have their own events. Um, so it's really strategic in the way that we've created a space where there's like multiple uses for every space that we have. Um, I think anchoring a coffee shop and a bar in the food hall is also a great idea. Shout out to my boss for <laughs> thinking of that one. Um, because we do, we wanted to create a space where people hang out for a little bit. You know, there are 10 options in this food hall and nobody expects you to get to all 10 in your first visit or even your second visit, you know, but by your third where we put our foot down. No, but um, we definitely want to create a space where people want to hang out and people want to be. And maybe you, you know, grabbed your meal, but you're going to grab an egg roll on the way out because um, you've been here for four hours and you're a little hungry again. So we definitely think of ways that we can, you know, create a space that people want to come to and want to hang out in. Um, and, you know, being downtown, we're also the, just the physicality of where we are. We're across from the bus hub, we're right downtown on the kind of edges of the south and west side. So really kind of this connector space where people are already coming and going. Going, and now we've just created something that gives them a reason to stop. Yeah. And like on the flip side too. So we're at a point uh, at the recording of this, um, you know, there's, there's a number of vendors that are, that are getting ready to, uh, to reach the next step of their own development. I mean, they're going and they're, they're getting their own retail spaces and they're making their way out and we're like waving to them and saying like, don't go too far, you know? Um, and it's really exciting, but, uh, you guys did an amazing program. I mean, you're in the middle of it right now where um, anybody, doesn't matter who it is, can come, can come forward and learn about the space 
and can be put in touch with business coaches to think a little bit more rationally about how they can how they can make something function, what the scalability of that is, whatever. And then you do a series of demo nights where what is this uh, consecutive Thursdays? Like community yes, members was, come in. Yes. So it was uh, like eight Thursdays that we did. Yeah. So like what um, as as this has has come to fruition, like how have you seen uh, like the benefit of those types of training sessions for the community? Yeah, I think so. Number one, I think the biggest thing that's most important that we see a lot of that often doesn't get talked about um, is folks who have the money to start a business, but maybe are not actually ready to start a business. Um, And the great thing that we're able to do here is kind of stop that before it gets too far. We often have stories of, you know, especially when you're um, dealing with folks who are maybe in the new American community and aren't as familiar with how, you know, laws and permits and things like that work in the United States. Um, we've had stories of folks who oh paid a guy $5,000 to get them their business license and that didn't actually happen. Um, or, you know, folks who are interested in starting a business, but maybe don't realize how much work actually goes into it. So the incredible thing about having that awesome TA and having folks to be able to come in and kind of give advice and give information on what it's like to open a business um, means that you're stopping people from getting into situations that could, you know, be detrimental to them. You're stopping people from, you know, if they've built up a little generational wealth, you're stopping them from flushing it down the toilet because they weren't aware that they needed permits for things. Or we've had folks who, you know, closed on a property, purchased a property, and then found out that they couldn't rezone it for commercial use. And it's like, great. I wish we could have jumped in (laughs) before you closed on that property and saved you a couple, you know, hundred thousand dollars. So it's definitely been awesome more from a prevention standpoint, which I know sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but for, for us at the Salt City Market and kind of with the Allen Family Foundation in general, we, we think it's important for folks to ethically start businesses and start businesses that they can run in the long term. Um, I think there's often a kind of cash grab if you see an industry or um, I think especially around restaurants in the past few years, there's definitely been um, more of an uptick in folks wanting to start businesses or being interested or seeing success from other places and wanting that for themselves, um, and which is great if you have the tools necessary to make it happen. Um, And what we don't want is for folks to end up in a worse position than they were before because they were, you know, unaware. So that's where our TA comes in. It's really great to be able to have professionals who are able to share kind of what's going on in, you know, in the industry and prepare people. And if after that conversation, 90% of the people are like, actually, no, I don't want to do this. That's fine. Cause that 10% we know is going to be even more prepared to move forward. Yeah. Like it's so, it's just so nice to see a business that's not a cash grab. I mean, <laughs> like I had a, uh, one of my, uh, one of my friends was thinking about starting a catering operation and was, and was, uh, came to the first, I think two, cause it, it first two training sessions or something like that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of openness about come ask questions or whatever. And she went and it was, it was talking to the person who put the thing together. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden learned about another community kitchen within the city that she could go use. And like, uh, as she was balancing out her idea of like, this is my vision for the business. This is the needs of this community. Cause this community has to, it's a, it's a, it's a viable ecosystem and it has to be feeding itself. Uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> And, you know, simply coming to those events, she learned that this is not actually the thing that she needed. And that's 
part of the value of this education. And that's okay. Like that's, I think sometimes uh, folks feel like, oh, you know, my business idea didn't work out. Like that's a failure. It's like, it's actually a win. You didn't throw all your money down the toilet, like trying to chase this thing that wasn't actually going to be viable for you. Um, and sometimes it's hard to tell people that some people are stubborn um, and they really, you know, want to, if they have an idea or a goal for themselves, because I think when we talk about owning a business, um, we don't talk about the kind of like personal worth that's often put on it. And that, you know, for a lot of people, owning a business is a way that they can say, you know, I made it or I did it. Um, and so it can sometimes be hard to tell someone, hey, the business idea you have isn't viable or it's not viable in this space, um, which I think sometimes throws people that not every business is viable everywhere. Um, so it, it's definitely sometimes hard to have that conversation, but it overall is just beneficial to them to, you know, if you still have that fire, try it with something else, you know, go try a different route. Um, but I think it's it's so important for us to make sure that we're we're setting people up for success. Absolutely. So uh, we're in an ecosystem right now. I can see, I don't know, every like the soil is helping grow the plants and that's as far as my biology nerd, nerdy, nerdery is going to go. But as the marketing communication manager here, like we talked about the fact that it's, you know, from the, from the onset, it seems like there's 50 people running this operation and there's not. It's a very, it's a very small group. And what is your piece of that puzzle? What do you do for this? So I, my title is the marketing communications manager. Um, so I kind of expectedly handle our marketing, our social media, you know, press releases, things like that. Um, but I also, because we are such a small team, kind of step into an even more kind of creative role in terms of the signage we have, um, Habiba's Ethiopian Kitchen. I designed her stall, which I brushed the dirt off my shoulders for that. Um, no, I, I, <laughs> I always say, like, you're the reason why I learned how to use Photoshop. And then <laughs> now look at me, I'm designing stalls. <laughs> So it, it definitely, I've definitely stepped into uh, a much more creative role in this position, um, which is great because so much of this market is visual and it's about the visual experience that you have. Um, and, you know, combining the visual experience of making it look really cool and then also making sure people know where to bust their things and where the restrooms are. Um, so I do a lot of the signage in and around the market um, and just kind of general, we, we're kind of all jacks of all trades in different areas. So as I mentioned, I also uh, run the forklift when our facilities guy isn't here um, and we kind of all step in where, where it's needed. Uh <laughs> I have to applaud you on the Habibas design. I had no idea. Um, and for, for those at home who are like, what is a Habib? Um, Habibas was, uh, I mean, it's, it's still a restaurant, but it was located on uh, the north side of the city. And uh, was like, that was my, f I don't want to say my favorite thing out of COVID was, uh, but discovering them as a takeout location and a place to support, like I, it just, it changed my entire culinary palate. Like I just love what Habibas does. Um, but they decided that making a home here would be a good way for them to reach their next step. And I just think that's a really interesting option because so many people view, oh, you went from having your own place to going to a food court as like a step back. And in this case, like it gives them so much bandwidth to be able to just handle so many other things, including hiring the one CJ Butler in <laughs> order to design their, uh, you know, their, their entire, uh, booth, which is really cool. Yeah, no, it was a really awesome experience. Um, and to that point of, you know, having Habibas come in being a, 
kind of already a standalone restaurant and then coming into the market, I think was surprising for a lot of people because it was the assumption that this space would just be kind of turning out new concepts. Um, but it, it goes to the point that, you know, caring about this community and kind of the ecosystem of it. Habibas has always been a staple for people. Um, I think folks would have rioted if she, <laughs> if she left Syracuse. Um, and, you know, it was kind of this divine timing of her getting ready to leave her space because it just wasn't manageable for her anymore. And uh, Pies the Limit, which was a vendor that was previously in that space, um, them moving on to uh, the regional market and doing their own um, brick and mortar space that... It worked out perfectly within like two weeks of announcements of each um, that we were able to have her come in. And so it really is so amazing for us to have this Syracuse staple that, you know, she she kind of put Ethiopian food on the map for Syracuse. Um, and, you know, to have her here is is so awesome. Oh, man. And so delicious. So delicious. <laughs> what a, So uh, in regards to your role in communications, one of the aspects of this that I find really interesting is the way in which um, people's roles and positions are labeled. Um, you know, like we uh, we don't have people who are custodians or who are table bussers. We have ambassadors um, and things like that. And I'm curious about like in your in your role and just as you think about the the, the way this place operates, um, how how was that language determined and why is that important for the the makeup of this space? Yeah. So our ambassadors, um, it started as a program with the rescue mission where we basically take folks who are at the stage of their life where, you know, maybe they had something horrible happen to them. They've been dealing with something, you know, terrible, but they've gotten it together to the point where they're ready to take that next step into employment. Um, but it can be difficult to get employed for a multitude of reasons, especially if you're someone who, for folks who aren't familiar, the rescue mission is our, um, local shelter and um, kind of community resource center for folks who um, are experiencing hardship. So it can be really difficult when you're coming from situations like that to get employed. Um, we saw that opportunity and we also recognized that we had a, a need that this building is, I think, like 21,000 square feet. It's a lot of uh, space to cover and um, we're a staff of about six people, so we can't be here all the time. Um, so we worked with the rescue mission to create this ambassadors program where we basically hire folks um, who just need that next lift. They're, you know, hardworking folks, they're hospitable, they're probably one of my favorite parts of working here is seeing like the yellow t-shirts walking around because you know you're going to get a smile. Um, but they, they have a twofold um, responsibility where one is hospitality. You know, they'll point you to the restrooms. They'll, if you're getting groceries from the co-op, they'll help you take your groceries out to your car. Um, but the second half is also security because coming from the rescue mission, they have a very unique set of skills, a very unique um, experience, and they know how to interact with folks that, you know, I might not know how to interact with because I just don't know those people and they do. Um, and so they've been really, really helpful in situations where, you know, we're, we're in downtown, we're near the rescue mission. If there's someone who's outside who's having a mental health crisis, they're able to tell us, okay, this person is just going through something. They're not violent. You need to call X, Y, and Z to be able to get them some help versus, okay, this person is violent. You might want to call the police, which has been really helpful to make sure, one, that we're not over-policing folks who are often just in need of help, um, but to also make sure we're identifying you know, threats that we might not be able to be around. So our ambassadors are super important parts of our um, kind of Salt City Market ecosystem. And I think calling them ambassadors um, was important for us because 
that's really what they are. Like they're, they're the closest kind of one-to-one touch that we have. This market is open for 66 hours a week. Um, and none of myself or my colleagues work that much. So to have folks who are on the ground and are interacting with people, um, you know, late night after everyone else has gone, you know, after the office folks have gone home, being able to help someone to their car at 8 PM, cause now it gets dark at 8 PM <laughs> to help them get their groceries to their car and just be that kind of, um, that last line of hospitality that you remember when you were at the market. So I love our ambassadors. They are, they're such an important part of our, our Salt City market team. Awesome. Uh, I, I have questions for you that are in a totally opposite direct. I mean, it's still, it's still related to community, but um, is there anything about the Salt City market or your role here that we haven't touched that you wanted to, to cover at all? Um, not particularly. I think we, yeah, we talked about new vendors. Yeah, we got it all. Yeah, we got it all. Okay, perfect. Because uh, the the other thing I want to talk about is a very different type of community, which is uh, you're you're a self identified hooker. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yep. And, uh, to be clear, this is not like a pretty woman narrative. (laughs) Um, but you, uh, in recent years, like, like very recently have all of a sudden, (laughs) yeah, started getting really into crochet and fiber arts, right? Yes. Um, and you're a part of the, uh, the, the off the hook crochet club, which was, uh, is it, is it Saisha Bird? Saisha. Saisha Bird. And then, uh, future podcast guest, Julio Campbell, um, are, are the people behind it. Tell me about this sort of awesome new discovery of fiber arts and crochet. Yes. So I, um, I have never been a hands-on maker. Um, I've always been a digital <laughs> creator. Um, and I, I feel like every year, every January, everyone's new year's resolution is to try something new or to stay off of your phone or, you know, get back to basics when it comes to hobbies and things like that. Um, and for me, it was no different this year. So I started crocheting in January of this year of 2023. Um, so very new to crocheting, but I, I, I caught the bug very quickly. Um, so Jaleel and Saisha both invited me to, you know, they were just thinking of creating this kind of crochet circle that, you know, we'll invite a few people, we'll hang out. Um, and I was invited. And what actually happened was that we all kind of like became family over a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, just being in a Facebook group message and sharing the different things we're all working on, um, getting together. At first, it was just bi-weekly. We said every other week we're going to get together. And then we said, but what if we add in wind down when? Wednesdays, where we get together on Wednesdays and drink wine and crochet. And then it was like, we're seeing each other all the time. Um, but it really was this incredible, like burst of community that I definitely was not expecting at all. I thought, okay, I'm going to go say hi to Jaleel, maybe meet a couple new people, leave with a beanie and call it a day. Um, especially as a, I have ADHD, so I'm really bad about I don't stick with hobbies very well. I'll get really into something for like a month or so and then kind of leave it by the wayside. Um, so I was shocking to have this. I think having that community aspect just kept me on it. Um, so I actually was crocheting. That's why I missed your message. Because <laughs> I, I always put my phone down face down and I just kind of get into get into my crocheting into the mode. Um, but no, it's, it's been incredible and I, I highly recommend it to any, any and everyone. <laughs> I love it. And the, um, you know, it's, uh, so I guess I just want to give a little, a little bit of background, which is, uh, if I understand this correctly, uh, Saisha re- uh, was part of an after school program that Jaleel learned to, uh, crochet from her when he was eight. And, uh, for those who are like, who's Jaleel? Um, 
Jaleel is a is a is an illustrator who you will hear about. Uh, I feel very confident in that. Uh, one of my former colleagues and, and a graduate of Casanova College, um, and somebody who has really uh, managed to develop digital art that just has such soul to it. Um, like every time I, I I look at his work, you know, like oftentimes like as as art critics or whatever, people look and they're like, what is, you know, what is an exploration of the the black experience in America? And Jaleel's work, I think, is is some of the most profound work that I've seen where I am just so humbled and put in my place when I look at it. Um, and just, you know, me coming from like a middle class white background, like I look at his work and it just it makes me want to just ask so many questions and it makes me want to open up narrative. Um, so he discovered this passion for crochet when he was eight um, and then has sort of since rediscovered it, gets together with his teacher um, and then uses it. It's not like it's not just a club. It's a it's an educational community where, um, you know, having read about it, it seems like the majority of the people have never, similar to you, touched a crochet hook yeah. prior to their experience there. So it's really exciting. Um, we have a few people who, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh, yeah, I have my grandma or my aunt taught me when I was a kid, but I completely forgot or I never really got into it. Or folks like me who never touched a hook before and was just showing up um, kind of for the community aspect of it. And it's so incredible to see everyone's skill. Like we we really, uh, what, what's the phrasing about rising tides lift all oh, oh, ships? Right, right, yeah, rising <laughs> tides lift all ships. <laughs> because we, as each of us get better, we start to kind of get competitive. Like, oh, that person finished their beanie. I got to go finish mine so I can get started on the next project. Um, or, oh, your stitches look really clean. I got to be neater about mine. And we create this environment where, you know, they're you can come at any skill level and exchange and just enjoy. And maybe even if you don't crochet, you just want to be a part of the conversation and that feeling of, you know, just being around folks, which I think, you know, post pandemic, I'm doing air quotes around post, um, but I think it's really hard often to find spaces where you can just show up and be without an expectation of spending or whatever. So it's, it was really important for us to kind of create that space. So we will be kicking uh, off the Hook Crochet Club up for our 2023-24 season because um, we just got a grant from the Community Foundation. Thank you to the Community Foundation. Um, so we'll be having some really fun events coming up um, over the next couple of months. I, I love it. And uh, I have so many questions I want to go to, but I want to talk about uh, the inherent public arts and nature of it, which I think is really interesting. And, uh, you know, so um, from what I understand in the crochet world, World, like being able to nail a granny square is like one of the first things that like once you do that it's like it's it's a, a building block that you can all of a sudden turn into Jaleel just turned them into sweaters you can build blankets and things like that um, and you guys worked with the uh, La Casita Cultural Center to develop um, a gigantic community quilt and just for people out there who are like yeah gigantic whatever I go to bed with a quilt this is 25 feet wide by six feet high yes can you tell me a little bit about that project and I think it, it might be a little closer to 10 feet high. We had to fold it under at the bottom. Um, so uh, Jaleel had the idea to do this community quilt, um, working with La Casita Cultural Center. They're also, I think, right now doing a crochet and fiber arts kind of course that we're working with them and kind of bouncing off of each other. Um, but he had the idea to do this community quilt, um, which at first, when he told us all we had to crochet 50 granny squares each, we were like, what? Oh, I just started. I don't even like 50. Um, but again, granny squares being that kind of
kind of crochet building block that, you know, once you start, you just start ripping them out. And it's so easy to kind of put things together. And so over the course of, I want to say maybe four and a half months from about February to so five months from February to July, um, we worked and created these granny squares and put together this quilt um, that we hung uh, on the fence outside of La Casita. And it was really cool and really important because I think, number one, um, fiber arts and quilting in general have a very black and brown history, um, especially for, you know, myself as a black American. Quilting is such a big part of storytelling and part of um, how you share who you are. So there's different panels on the uh, quilt that were made by different members. And you can tell based on the color of yarn they use or the types of granny square patterns that they use. Um, and I thought that it was so beautiful and so um, incredible for us to kind of, you know, while we individually work on these quilts. We put them together and create this kind of larger story that kind of tells who our crochet club is. Um, it turned out to be an enormous project for a first year. <laughs> we definitely did not think that it would come out to being as large as it is, but it was so incredible and so impactful. So we did it. Um, La Casita is located on the west side of Syracuse. It's right across the street from a housing project. Um, so to debut the quilt, we did a cookout, basically. We got the grill out. Um, we all, all the community, um, sorry, all the crochet club members contributed food, we brought stuff in, and and we just invited the community to come check out the quilt um, and, you know, fellowship with us. And it was really awesome seeing especially little kids kind of coming up and being like, y'all made that? And I was like, yeah, we made it with our own two hands. Like, you want to go, you want to see some yarn? Like, you want to start, uh, you know, we want to get you into it too. You're the perfect age to start crocheting. Um, so it was really cool just to have that experience and to have that kind of, um, you know, I think sometimes even with public art, it's the idea that you see it and you look at it and you don't necessarily engage with it and engage with the people who made it. Um, so it was really cool to be able to have that experience of, you know, we put this art on, you know, this in this neighborhood and we're also able to interact with the neighborhood and explain why we did it and, you know, what we want to do in the future. So it was really awesome. It's so great. And I think that so often we think about, um, fiber arts is kind of this limiting medium where it's, you know, oh, you have to wear it. And, you know, there's that. So just the the fact that it's it's got this inherent, uh, like repurposed, like let's tell the story of the fibers and let's demonstrate how, uh, you know, this from afar, it looks like uh, a weird kaleidoscope. And then you get closer to it and all of a sudden you do start to see like similar patterns from people and similar color schemes. And it starts to build this sort of inherent narrative in your brain about like, how, how is this project connected to itself, which is great. Um, and I do just love the fact that, uh, more importantly, as you talked about, uh, all these kids being like, you made that is that I think it's just a, a beautiful testament to the fact that like, you don't have to have skills, you know, you don't have to be like, a, a, here we go with the air quotes again, like <laughs> a natural talent in order to have your art demonstrated. And I, you know, in regards to uh, just seeing that out there and having it being a living testament to like 
you can just try something and it might turn into something. And if you've got the right community behind you, it can, it can impact everybody. I think that was the biggest takeaway um, for me when we did it was I was like, we did it. Like we actually did that. We were a bunch of, there was no organization behind us. Like we came together as the off the hook crochet club, but that's something we really more internally kind of called ourselves made an Instagram. Um, But the kind of push to do this art installation and to invite people to come and see it came from individuals just deciding that they wanted to do something. Um, And it felt so powerful to be like, wow, I don't necessarily consider myself an artist. I'm creative in lots of ways, but wouldn't consider myself an artist. So to have something I made displayed like an artist, I was like, wow, this is really it doesn't take much. Like you, all it takes is a little bit of, you know, conviction and you can get stuff done. That's so cool. Um, for your own personal, I'm going to, you're an artist. Let's just, <laughs> let's accept that. I mean, you designed, you designed the Habiba stall. Yes, it's commercial art. Um, but you know, as I was looking at like all the different things you made, I mean, you made a bunch of Shrek hats and beanies and like all of these different patterns, like you're, you're doing some interesting <laughs> stuff. So in your own crochet fiber arts journey, what do you want to, what do you want to get to? What do you want to be able to do? So I actually had a crochet catastrophe this morning. <laughs> I uh, moved on to more expensive yarns recently, um, but I have not properly learned how to care for those yarns. So I accidentally put a wool scarf in the washing machine and it felted itself. Very, so I'd like to get to a point where I am caring for my, <laughs> I, I want to make things that last a long time. I think, especially when I, the first few items I made, They had construction to them, but I think that if you kind of like pulled at the corners a little bit, they might come apart. Um, And for me, I think the coolest thing about fiber arts and especially, you know, crochet and knitting is creating things that can last for a long time that, you know, wool is like indestructible in terms of like keeping it clean, keeping it up, you know, as long as you don't have like the moths coming in, but having something where I make a sweater and I'm able to like pass that on to a child or a blanket that I'm able to give to a friend and, you know, maybe their child grows up sleeping with that blanket, those kinds of things that I think just have the longevity of knowing that like the thing that you made is going to continue to be a part of someone's life. It's actually my biggest setback as a crocheter because I want to make everyone everything for free because I'm just so happy. (laughs) The idea of like, you want to have one of my hats in your home? Like, that's so amazing. And then I forget, I get about like six hours into the crocheting and I'm like, I should have charged. I could have got 20 bucks for this (laughs) at the very least. (laughs) Well, you know, that $2 an hour, uh, you know. That's, yeah, that's the thing people don't think about. When you start to try to pay yourself a living wage to crochet, things immediately get ridiculously expensive. So I've had, um, I made a um, kind of like a mesh dress that I was going to wear as like a bathing suit cover up. And I had a friend who was like, I want that and I'm going to pay you for your work. And you tell me like how much it's going to cost. And I was like, it's uh, $245. (laughs) for this acrylic yarn mesh cover-up, which for some people is not a problem, but for the average person when they're thinking of like, oh, I'll purchase some crochet, it's definitely out of the price range. Yeah. And there's, I mean, just in the worlds of like business incubating, like there's always the, well, maybe the people you're marketing to are not the people you're talking to, right? So maybe there is a there is a, a, a market for that. And then, you know, you subsidize the the people who can afford it for the people who can't. And, you know. 
goes from there. But that's great. I the amount just what I was looking at the amount of stuff that you've learned how to make in in just a few months. I'm just baffled by it. No, it really is awesome, and it. There's a feeling of like self-sufficiency that I can, you know, take a ball of yarn and turn it into something that can actually be used. Um, so something exciting that we're doing, but this will premiere after your after this premieres. Um, but on November 11th, we're doing a crochet-a-thon in the community room, actually. Um, and we're going to crochet a bunch of hats and scarves for the prevention network. Um, they give away for folks who are like struggling with addiction and things like that. Um, so it's really exciting to know that we're going to be, you know, creating more things that someone else is going to be able to use and love. So it's very exciting. Yeah. And I'll just say for anybody who just heard that and they're like, I just looked at the calendar and I can't feasibly go back in time. Uh, keep in, keep on the lookout for the Salt City uh, market calendar because other things like this are happening in even at a much higher frequency than we ever sort of estimated. Um, I want to just uh, go back and ask you um, one more question about Salt City market. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. What, um, what things are coming down the line for the Salt City Market that the world should know about? Yes. So by the time this premieres, we will have some new vendors coming into the market for in February. Um, so be prepared for that. In February 2024 is when our new leases are meant to start. Uh, so also that means between now and then, make sure you go check out your vendors who may be leaving um, and give them some love and support and a, a loving farewell. Uh, we also in December, on December 9th, we have our Snowmies event where we collaborate with the Black Artist Collective in Syracuse um, to have Black artists, creatives, and entrepreneurs uh, set up and you can do some great holiday shopping uh, with some local handmade crafts and gifts. Awesome. And I hope this is acceptable for me to say, but, um, you know, this is a, this is a space that seeks events and ideas. Um, and if you're someone who's listening to this and you're like, oh, I wish that we had blank in Syracuse, you know, I wish we had more drum circles. I wish we had more, you know, like, uh, comic artist gatherings. I wish we had more poetry readings. The list goes on. Um, it's completely acceptable to reach out to the leadership at the Salt City Market um, and say, hey, I've got an idea for something. One of our, uh, one of the guests from this podcast recently reached out and uh, is now putting together a, uh, you know, like a holistic medicine fair. Like, yes, we just talked about exciting <laughs> it's so exciting so i think that and i i the first person who uh is owes you guys a phone call because the <laughs> amount of times that i'm like oh we should use this room for for this it this is a space that is designed to uh add value to the community and if you can demonstrate that you're ready to add value to the community ears are open yes Check so, us out. So for people who uh, who would like to know more about the Salt City Market, how can they find you guys? Um, so you can check out our website, which is saltcitymarket.com. Um, that's also where you can go if you have any cool ideas for events or things that you'd like to see. Uh, you can just hit our contact form um, and fill out the events section of it, and that will make sure that gets to our events manager. Uh, you can also follow us on social media at the Salt City Market. Uh, don't forget that T-H-E in the beginning. Um, and that's where you can also stay updated to all of the events that we have going on, um, as well as any cool new food items. If you just want to drool, you can also follow us for that too. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who are out of town who are like, way to do something regional, Ryan, uh, I strongly suggest following these things because I find that, uh, 
I'm always coming up with new ideas based off of the cool programming that's happening. Uh, and I always want to make space at the end of the show. Is there anything that's on your mind, anything we haven't talked about, anything you'd like to talk about, just to, uh, you, the world that we just, you'd like to sort of throw out there and, and rattle about? No, this has been so wonderful. Definitely stay updated with the Off the Hook Crochet Club. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook at the OTH Crochet Club. Um, and definitely keep up with the Salt City Market as well. We've got lots of fun things coming. And as Ryan said, we've always, we're always looking for new and cool ideas to just make Syracuse even cooler. Awesome. Well, CJ, thank you so much for uh, making space for conversation today. Thank you for having me. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. I always find it fascinating to sort of zoom out and look at a business from the standpoint of what benefits is it giving to our community? And it's so nice to know that the leadership team behind the Salt City Market is dedicated to developing resources for everyone around us. I hope the one thing that you took away from this, though, is that if you're local to central New York, the Salt City Market is a resource for you. And if you're not, it's just a really great example to look at and pay attention to and learn from to figure out what kind of amazing things you can do in your own community. No matter what income bracket you're in, there are ways in which we can help build everybody up around us. With that said... This completes episode nine of Meditations with Ryan Zlomek, and we're coming back with a really exciting episode 10. We're going to have Tim Allen on the show, and as soon as I say that, you might be thinking home improvement and Buzz Lightyear. Sadly, he has declined being on the show, but this Tim Allen, I think, is equally fascinating, if not more so. Tim Allen is a UK-based stop-motion animator who's worked on a ton of films that you've seen, including Tim Burton's The Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox, and the new Aardman film Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget on top of countless other movies. We're going to slow things down and start to think about life one frame at a time in this conversation, and I am over the moon to have somebody with this skill set on the show. So please tune in on December 6th for this interview with Tim Allen, who, oh, I forgot to mention a really important one, also worked on the award-winning Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. So if you're interested in stop motion, please come check that out. Alternatively, if you like what you hear, please follow me on social media and tune in next time. You can find the world of Ryan Zlomek on Facebook and Instagram. You can also email me meditations at ryanslomek.com if you're interested in being a sponsor or just want to reach out. And if you want to help support the show, please share the show with people that you think would find it interesting. Do reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The more word gets out about this, the better I'll be able to bring guests in and just share their stories. So without further ado, please make sure you make space for conversation because you just might learn something. Have a lovely day.